Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Rachel Karens, theater artist, filmmaker, past portrayer of Juliet, Ophelia, and Viola, and now host and creator of the podcast Borsch. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hey, thanks for having me. So, the end of widespread reproductive freedom in the United States. Yes. Are we really framing this as a both sides issue now? And the convoy is coming back to Ottawa, maybe, sort of. What have we learned, and is it still a convoy without a parade of trucks, or how many trucks must be strung together in a row for it to be a convoy and not just a, you know, a traffic jam? Uh, I'm Jonathan Goldspeed, filling in for Jesse Brown, who, not unlike Fievel the Mouse, has gone west this week. This is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Mitchell Hughes, Malvina Rapko, Chris Hilbrecht, Aida Nasiri, Ian Dimmick, Ashley Trevelyan, Cal Kalizi, and Alex. I'm Alex, and I'm a comedian slash server living in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because I love hearing stories and news that reflect the actual reality and history of Canada from a non-CBCified perspective. I would highly recommend past and present seasons of the show Commons, particularly the Dynasty season, about the deranged, fascinating, and powerful families who run Canada. On this Friday night, America's landmark reversal on abortion rights. It's a sad day for the country, but it doesn't mean the fight's over. Tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court dismantles a half-century of abortion rights law. In a divided country, anger for personal loss. This is men dominated women. We're going to continue fighting. Set against joy for a political win. I have just been so excited for this. This decision is a victory for the pro-life movement. The fears of what's next and the potential effect on Canadian women. For the past year, Rachel, you've been researching, writing, and recording a podcast about the abortion landscape in Canada. Uh, Abortion premiered just a couple weeks ago. Having been immersed in this for so long and spoken to so many people about the subject, 
Was there a particular conversation or insight from your work and your reporting that you immediately thought back to when you first heard the news in the States? Very much the overturning of Roe was a matter of when, not if. So sadly, it came as no surprise. It was really a matter of waiting to just hear when this was going to be you know, officially announced. When I began my own personal research and exploration of reproductive rights and justice, there was a lot of literature in Canada to read about, you know, the landscape of our rights here. But I listened to a lot of of podcasts, the majority of which at the time were from the U.S. because of the reality of the situation there. And, you know, this is something that has been on reproductive justice advocates' radar for a long time. And, that, you know, they were all really just preparing to be able to deal with the consequences of it. So sadly, it was not a surprise. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was not just foreseeable, but yeah, thoroughly foreseen. And so just to recap for listeners at the just how this happened to play out in, in practice is that at the start of May, Politico published a leaked draft of a United States Supreme Court decision overturning two crucial precedents, Roe v. Wade and Plant Parenthood v. Casey, that jointly assured abortion access across the country. And late last week, that same decision, virtually unchanged from the draft, was officially released. The exact implications are changing day by day and even hour by hour, but as of Tuesday evening at least, The Guardian counted eight states in which abortion is now completely banned, 10 more in which bans or severe restrictions are imminent, and a dozen more in which it's they characterize it as being under threat. So that leaves just you know, two-fifths of states in which the status quo is likely to hold for the foreseeable future. I mean, abortion is often framed as a heated debate, an issue with multiple sides. But while there is some truth to that, I mean, I think what's often overlooked is that an issue can be divisive without that division falling straight down the middle. What we're going to talk about is, like, do both sides deserve equal airing when one view is far more commonly held and much more deeply rooted in fact than the other? And at what point should an issue, and particularly a human rights issue, no longer be subject to debate? Just as a jumping off point as a case study, as we often do in the show, we'll look at the CBC, uh, how things work there in theory and how that plays out in practice. I just want to start off with this bit. So on Radio 1's The Current on Monday morning, we heard an example of a classic both sides Uh The guest host, Nala Ayed, first spoke to Anna Visser, Communications and Education Director for Right to Life of Michigan. Why don't you think it should be a woman's choice? We believe in human rights for all humans. We're excited to see that restored, hopefully, in Michigan. And we just believe that human life begins at fertilization and that they, these unborn children should have their own individual human rights as they are humans. So immediately after on the show was Robin Marty, who's the operations director for the West Alabama Women's Center and the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. And that interview began like this. Robin, what are you thinking after hearing what Anna Visser had to say? I honestly wish I had not just sat in and listened to that interview because I am so furious at this moment for the complete disregard for the patients that we have seen, the patients that we can't see, um, the way that she completely and utterly ignored your question about lack of health care and our maternal mortality rates. I live in Alabama where the maternal mortality rate is actually twice of that in Michigan and is also predominantly black women. They then spoke to a law professor who's an expert on the U.S. Supreme Court. So, Rachel, what do you think about the way this was framed? I know in your podcast, you had, this is certainly a question you had to weigh of, like, what space, if any, does one give to people who believe, as this person does, that life begins at fertilization? Who do you think benefits from that kind of framing? I was so glad for the response that she immediately gave in reaction to having listened to that first interview. I think it was entirely irresponsible of the CBC to frame that entire interview with a, you know, anti-abortion perspective off the top, because that completely frames abortion in relation to its opposition, which is a part of the problem as to why reproductive rights are still not fully realized particularly in America, but also here in Canada, too. So I was so grateful for her to immediately call that out. 
as kind of the propaganda that it is. And also, more subtly, shame on the CBC for using these tired debates and forcing us to have them again and again, instead of actually looking at what's going on there and what does that mean for us here in our country. Yeah, right afterward, or a couple hours after Robin Marty, the operations director of the clinic, wrote on Twitter that I didn't realize this morning that the guest before me was from Right to Life Mm -hmm. and that I would be listening and responding to her bullshit. Mm -hmm. I'd been avoiding listening to those people so far to try to keep going, and I lost it on the air. Shaking, angry, crying. I was grateful for her response. I thought it was completely accurate and it needed to be said. You know, I can imagine personally, you know, how she would feel that way. But as a listener, I was so happy how she articulated it. And it's interesting because this came just three days after a similar issue with on CBC. So that was CBC's basically one of the flagship radio programs Mm -hmm. on their flagship English TV program on the National, where Dr. Jennifer Gunter very publicly rejected a request to appear in a similar sort of rebuttal capacity. Uh, Gunter, who's a best-selling author and a Canadian living in the U.S., and who at this point is probably one of, if not the highest-profile OBGYNs in the world, tweeted out the email that she sent to them. I have to decline the CBC's interview request if you're also interviewing a forced birth advocate. There is zero point in being on a show that elevates those who lie to deny medical care. In fact, elevating these people is part of the problem and why we're dealing with this snowballing medical tragedy. The CBC is a massive platform and it should not be used to provide the illusion that there is a debate. Abortion is a human right, and when you platform forced birthers, that means you subscribe to the belief that those who can get pregnant are not deserving of human rights. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that when you saw that? I stand Jen Guntner. Like, I was so, again, grateful that she shared that email publicly because shame on the CBC for using this opportunity to rehash a very tired debate that has already been won. And is also us having this quote unquote debate, you know, <laughs> It's by design. You know, it actually stops progress from being discussed. And I'm firmly in the camp that there are no two sides to a human rights issue. There is people who are oppressing human rights and people whose rights are being oppressed. And I completely agree with her that to give them a platform is to subscribe to oppressing human rights. Absolutely, Jen Guttner, thank you so much for not buying into that. What she did an effective job of framing is the idea that this has or at least ought to be seen to have passed from the realm of debate into the realm of human rights, you know, which in a way things that are beyond debate, or at least the debating of which is itself an affront to those rights. Mm -hmm. And there's arguably a larger cultural tension around a number of subject areas in terms of like what things are as a matter of dignity or should they be off limits to debate. And I think, I mean, there's obviously intersections and different things are overlap and related, but also distinct in their own way. I mean, one with certain social movements that have progressed more rapidly, such as trans rights, I think something that we've certainly seen, even from people who believe they were are well-meaning, sort of backlashes and that they don't realize things maybe have passed from the realm of like, this is still a subject of debate to realizing that the debate itself is offensive. Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned is that you're saying like, you know, this issue has been won. And I guess that's also one of the odd tensions here. The weird thing is because it was one, but now it's not anymore. Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy that treating as a debate allowed it to flow back to the other side? Is it still one? (laughs) I would challenge the, I can't exactly paraphrase you, but I think you said like, it's not anymore. We still have abortion in Canada. It's completely decriminalized. Like it, it's, we, we aren't what's happening in the States. We do have it. Yes. The matter is not all of us can exercise that right equally and access remains our biggest issue. We are no longer in the territory of humming and hawing over whether we're going to take this away, this established right away from Canadians. It's really a matter of how do we make it better now. And yes, when we're talking about R.V. Morgenthaler, you know, our 1988 abortion victory, you know, the Supreme Court did strike down our previous criminal law and left space for the government to present and propose a new law, which the Mulroney government did in 91, which didn't pass. It died in the Senate. So yes, you know, the way that our political and legal system works is government could propose a new abortion law. But 
all advocates for reproductive justice unanimously disagree with this happening, be it to support reproductive justice or be it to put some sort of restrictions on abortion. There is so little support for this besides from people who just want to ban abortion. That's a conversation that we need to be steering away from because we don't want it and we don't need it. I mean, one of the things that makes me think of is, I mean, obviously you mentioned R.V. Morgenthaler, the landmark decision in Canada in 1988. I found the, the Globe and Mail's front page from the next day. The headline, you know, abortion law scrapped, women get free choice. But what I thought was really interesting was a very literal visual depiction of both sides below that, mm. where there are two reports laid out in parallel columns, both by Anne Rohalla with her byline straddling the two. <laughs> one says, jubilant, despite sounding note of caution, feminists hail decision as victory. The other one says, defiant, anti-abortion campaigners vow to put pressure on government. I mean, it's not the, I mean, it's a layout thing. I guess it's clever, but I really found that really interesting about like here is such a literal both sidesing yes. and how even after it was won, <laughs> literally the day after, that's still how it was was framed. In making your podcast, how did you decide how and to what extent to represent those who wish to limit reproductive freedom? Yeah. So it was something that I really wrestled with as to if I would include it or not, because I'm somebody who very much errs on the side of don't, don't give it airtime. However, there's an element of the podcast that documents my own personal experience with abortion. And I hail from the West Coast. I run in like very progressive circles. So prior to my abortion, I actually didn't think that much or even register anti-abortion sentiment on my radar. And once I got unintentionally pregnant and had to wait two weeks for my clinic appointment, I was very nauseous and tired in bed for the majority of that time. And I began to just Google abortion like relentlessly. I think it was kind of like a coping strategy to feel some semblance of like control over, you know, what was happening to my body. And in this Googling, you know, the algorithm gods tried to sway me to the other pole of the internet. And they presented this talk at Google, which was by a woman named Stephanie Gray, who's Canadian. Mm -hmm. And they think the thumbnail was like abortion from controversy to civility or something like that. And I clicked mm -hmm. on it because I was like, yes, please, like, let's let's move that way. And proceeded to listen to this woman who honestly checks a lot of the outward demographics that I identify with, you know, white, inner 30s, uh, you know, long brown hair, the host made sure to mention that she was missing her, uh, you know, local ukulele club to be there to speak with them that day, which gives her this, you know, like disarming quirkiness. So welcome, everyone. Our speaker today, uh, this is the first time she has missed uh, a very special engagement, uh, and that is the Vancouver Ukulele Circle. But, but she goes on for an hour to equate abortion to murder and explain why abortion is morally wrong. And I was gobsmacked by the fact that I'm watching a woman at Google mm -hmm. in 2017 talk for an hour about how we need to equate abortion to murder and rape and other criminal offenses and heinous crimes. Now, if abortion doesn't end the life of a human being, then I think we can call into question, should we have any laws against it? But since we know we're dealing with a human being that's living, then if the act of abortion ends that human being's life, it's not enough for me to say, I personally won't kill someone, but if you want to kill someone, that's your right. If the facts are true, if the evidence is there, we have to go to its logical conclusion and say, if this action ends someone's life, it's wrong not just for me, but it's wrong for everyone. And we ought to have laws against it, as we do with rape and other types of murder and, and other things like that. That was the first time that this real kind of like rebranding of the new seemingly progressive anti-abortion movement, I became aware of it. And I was really interested in how they were co-opting the language of social justice and human rights and feminism to present this really manipulative argument to progress their moral and religiously infused agenda. 
And I got a little obsessed with her, honestly. So in the podcast, we talk about the morality thing in the second episode. I frame it very much in that way from my own personal perspective of I'm somebody who doesn't like to spend time or give oxygen to these conversations. However, we do need to be able to discuss and examine the tactics that they're taking and what they look like both in the U.S. and here so that we can be aware of our enemies, for lack of a better word. And to a certain extent, also the spirit with which I I talk about it in the podcast is to be like, look, you know, abortion has always been framed against its opposition to its detriment and our detriment, I believe, but that's just been the nature of how it's existed in society. We need to move away from that, I think, but it is kind of the elephant in the room. So in, in my podcast, I just address it right off the top pretty much in terms of the arc of the season so that we can move on to more important conversations. Yeah, that was something in the episode that like, I found astonishing. And I actually, you know, I, I, pa- I, I had to pause and just go over <laughs> to YouTube to see, like, is this actually a talk at Google from yeah. Stephanie Gray? And I'm, you know, I'm roughly, it's like, Stephanie, she's the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. And I, yeah, it was like 300,000 views of this Google talk. And I, I did interview her like oh, a decade ago, but it was for like a print piece. So just like a couple quotes oh, wow. somewhere in there. It's one of the organizations that uh, can't speak to its current activities, but generally what it has been done, it, it's one of the more visceral ones with like mm-hmm. very graphic signs. Graphic. Flyers circulated. In that case, what I wrote about it like in 2013, it was signs being held up outside of a high school in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I like the difference between, you know, excerpting and speaking to and engaging with someone in that way of like, okay, here's what they say, but and then trying to contextualize it, to put it very nicely. Whereas I was curious on like how much symmetry was there really between these voices on the CBC, on the national. And so the spot that would have gone to Jen Gunter seemed to have gone to this uh, different OBGYN, Dr. Selena Sandoval. The anti-abortion person they spoke to was Catherine Glenn Foster from America's United for Life. Uh, including the host's introductions and questions, each interview was almost exactly two minutes and 55 seconds with approximately 500 words spoken. <laughs> I found like the, the symmetry there was quite remarkable in just the actual extent to which they gave equal weight. Uh-huh. Although I will note that on the current, Robin Martin E was on for about 50% longer than anti-abortion activist Anna Visser, but maybe that probably shouldn't be surprising because it you know generally takes fewer words to dismiss a problem than it does to articulate it. <laughs> The CBC sent out a memo first when the draft opinion leaked last month, and then they sent it around again last week, how they want it talked about. And one of the things they said, one of the values they emphasized was balance over time. And this is a thing in the CBC's Journalistic Standards and Practices Guide about how they achieve balance, that a given segment doesn't need to be balanced, just over time. In this memo on the subject of abortion was, balance means reflecting diverse opinions and divergent views while keeping in mind their relevance and how widespread they are. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that every report needs to include every perspective, context matters. It's okay for a story to focus on only one point of view, as long as it doesn't make it sound like that's the only point of view out there. The stronger and more controversial view is the more effort we should make to present it in the context of other perspectives on the same issue. And then they also emphasize, you know, avoiding fake balance. Founding balance doesn't mean reducing a complex story to a game of pro slash con, and it doesn't need to sit on a 50-50 line. What do you think about these guidelines, is it reasonable, at least in theory, even if it's not playing about that way in practice, or might they be flawed in and of themselves? Personally, I think they are outdated and not applicable to the issue of reproductive rights and justice in Canada. We know there are countless polls that demonstrate that significant majorities of the Canadian population believe in access to abortion and reproductive choice. Abortion and reproductive choice have been treated as a liability by all governments, pretty much, since Morgenthaler, you know. And that in and of itself is an issue for us. Saying that you're not going to reopen the debate isn't enough. But it has not been a popular platform to say, yeah, we're going to reevaluate how we feel about abortion. I'm of the opinion that given the atrocity that's just happened in the States, we really need to be examining what reproductive choice means for Canadians, how we can progress that for them, how it's related to the other urgent issues that we're all facing, climate, affordable housing, how are we going to realize universal childcare? Instead of listening to religious minorities as to why they want to turn back time. Absolutely. I mean, I like the, the point in the balance over time is you know, keeping in mind 
their relevance and how widespread they are. Mm -hmm. I think they can reasonably make an argument for the relevance. So when you divide something into 50-50 time yeah. or even 60 uh, – in the math wrong, but like 66-33 time. <laughs> uh, anyway, when you divide things like that, in fact, it's so – I mean, it's not only easy to lose sight of it, arguably just misrepresents yeah. the extent of these opinions, not just in Canada, of course, but certainly in the States where it's yeah. – there's almost – not near unanimous, but like a – ridiculously large, overwhelming majority of Americans uh, believe in the access to abortion in at least some circumstances. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the other question is the question of balance over time, how widespread a view is and the relevance to the, to the debate. And I guess that's the other tricky thing is certainly in the American context, more so than here, but also here as well, when there is a group that is arguably a fringe, but there are very vocal active and, or, and crucially an organized fringe that has achieved over time this real uh, – effectively an overhaul of American society through one judicial decision. How do we separate that out when there is – it is something as a small group and we you maybe don't want to misrepresent how widespread it is, but it's also almost incumbent to acknowledge, well, they achieve this. So who are they and how do they do it? Yeah, that is important to understand, to see just what a long game commitment that was and how they did achieve it. What it makes me think of, the representative that I spoke to from Reproductive Justice New Brunswick said that while they have been battling the provincial government there about funding the abortion clinic, they really worked to get the media to interview the government as their opposition and not religiously based organizations who are, of course, lobbying the government and in bed with the government. But the government is the one who's creating the policies. The government is the opposition. And she said that that was really imperative to how abortion gets discussed and framed in New Brunswick. And so in the American context, it just makes me think like, you know, even though I disagreed with how they framed the Currents interview, I was glad that they had the lawyer on to speak about what this meant legally. That is important. And I also think it's an opportunity, particularly in the American context, but it, we need to be paying attention to this too, as to the health of their democratic systems. How can this be that time and time again, we hear the majority of Americans agree with reproductive rights and are being ruled by a minority and understanding how this relates to the erosion of voting rights in that country and how the people are not truly being represented by who is getting elected. So I think it needs to be also examined by real scrutiny of the electoral system. And I believe we need to be doing that here too. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody – Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. As you likely know, Rachel, we duly note things on Shortcuts. What would you like to note, Dooley? This week, I would really like to duly note a tweet from Butilla Carpoche, uh, the NDP MPP, just bringing our attention to residents of a Parkdale apartment building who are being evicted for running their AC units during hot weather. And basically, apparently, we have rental policy in place that mandates a minimum temperature that apartments can get to, but there is no maximum temperature that apartments can get to. And what she's drawing our attention to is that landlords are using a loophole in the Residential Tenancy Act. If you can evict somebody, there's no rent control in terms of what the next rent you establish is. Obviously a dirty tactic by greedy landlords to displace vulnerable communities. And we need to stop that from happening. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a loophole since it was, by, I think it was by design. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. Le- like learning what some from John Oliver the other week that's, oh yeah, it's not, we don't, what we have is not really rent control. It's closer to rent stabilization. Oh man. Yeah. Limiting the increases in rent from one year of a tenancy to the next. Like no real rent control would apply to the unit and would prevent basically unrestricted increases in price from one tenant to the next, mm-hmm. which definitely seems to be the single biggest incentive for Mm -hmm. dubious evictions. Duly noted. I would like to duly note this strange thing that happened later in the afternoon Friday. Basically, when a seat becomes vacant on Toronto City Council, there can either be a by-election or councillors can vote to put someone in. So usually there's a by-election, which is, you know, a by-election to fill the seat for the rest of the term. But if it's close enough to the next regular election, which is this fall, Councillors will just generally vote to have someone go in and sort of fill the seat on a temporary basis just to basically take care of the constituency stuff. Although keeping in mind that Toronto wards are like, I don't know, the size of Prince Edward Island or something in terms of the population. I don't really pay as close attention to city council as I used to. But in between working on Canland's newsletter last Friday, I saw a tweet from uh, the columnist and uh, reporter Matt Elliott saying the results are in. Toronto Council votes Rosemary Bryan as your new temporary councillor for Ward 1, getting 21 of 23 votes cast. Ward 1 was the ward that was previously occupied by Michael Ford, the nephew of the Premier Doug Ford and the late Mayor Rob Ford. He was just elected to the provincial legislature and just sworn in as the Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism. And he had recommended as his successor on council this person, Rosemary Bryan, who on paper looks really good. She had, you know, gave them a nice package of media clippings over the years. Definitely seems to have connections in the ward. Would probably do an okay job on constituency stuff. But I saw this tweet from Matt and I was like, okay, curious who this person is. Who would get 21 of 23 votes on council? So I looked her up first on Twitter and saw some stuff. Okay, she worked for the Salvation Army and then kept seeing things that would raise more and more like, hmm, maybe I'll look a little further. And then eventually I found some Facebook posts over the past few years that basically were really homophobic. Things like you're posting a video about preachers saying, you know, we need divine order in our churches. Homosexuality is wrong. And she'll add the message, let the church say amen. Or uh, a video about why gender confusion is an assault on young people. And she added the message, okay, this needs to go viral. Or a Tucker Carlson clip of the end of gender. Here we go again. God help us. Or a um, this was actually a street preacher in Birmingham who gave a, a, a rant to the city council there several years ago about why gay marriage is a freak scene. And she called it, this, this has got to be the message of the year. So I tweeted those. And uh, long story short, this was actually, as far as I know, the shortest tenure anyone has ever had as a <laughs> Toronto City Councillor <laughs> in modern history. I really expected this to the thing where people would get angry, councillors would be embarrassed and wring their hands, and then nothing would happen because she would have only been a councillor for like five months anyway. It was a shock to me because it was very – I found it very much like a throwback to circa 2010 Twitter when like a few you know well-placed tweets could actually lead to some movement. Before a certain kind of politician learned that they could just sort of 
stick these things out. And so I was shocked that she actually resigned by roughly five hours after she was sworn in. That was a strange and surprising thing. And I believe council now has to go through the whole process again to find a new councillor for the ward, and maybe they won't take the recommendation of a Ford, uh, let alone the new minister of multiculturalism who had recommended someone who, in addition to the homophobic stuff, there was also some, you know, pretty um, astonishing anti-Muslim and anti-Chinese stuff. Wow. I was listening to that, getting all angry, and then what a left turn at the end. And now I don't even have to because of your journalism and creeping. Thank you so much. <laughs> journalism and creeping. Thank you. That is that is, that, that, that is actually a very good – it's kind of flattering, actually. It's a good, a good way to put it. Yeah. Well done, Jonathan, and duly noted. And Rachel, I believe you have another uh, thing you'd like to note, Dooley. Yes. I would like to duly note an article by Martha Painter in The Conversation. Martha is a, uh, an RN, registered nurse, and a huge reproductive justice advocate. I just want to shout out this article because she gives five tangible actions that kind of go beyond just the rhetoric of, you know, uh, affirming reproductive rights in Canada as to, like, what we actually need to do on federal and provincial levels to move the needle forward for the country. Everything from how we train providers, how we uphold and look at the Canada Health Act, how we get medical abortions, enable more providers to be able to prescribe them, particularly in Quebec, but also talking about having it to be over-the-counter available for people if we need it, but which would dramatically increase access, and the universal coverage of contraception across the country, and also finally just normalizing abortion and the work of providing that type of health care so that we don't have to keep on fighting about it. Duly noted, and we will... Link that in the show notes. Preparations underway for the first almost normal Canada Day celebrations in three years. But with hundreds of thousands expected to descend on the downtown core, there's also some anxiety about so-called freedom protesters among them. Police say they're ready. We expect there to be demonstrations. This is a right of all Canadians and it will be protected. We will not, however, accept unlawful behavior. The city says it'll have backup from the Mounties and Ontario Provincial Police. So how do you cover something that could turn out to be nothing or could turn out to be everything or could potentially be anything in between those? And which is also something that is also very different things to different people. Um, the media was faced with those conundrums in the run up to the convoy that arrived and then stuck around in Ottawa last winter. And it's faced with them again now that the convoy, or at least a convoy, or maybe just a new incarnation of the same loose movement, is expected to materialize in Ottawa in some form over the Canada Day weekend. So we're just going to look at how it's being covered now and how that sort of changed and what we've learned. Whenever I want to wrap my head around something that became the biggest story in the country and how it was covered by the mainstream media, I try to go back to the beginning and I'd like to see how things were like initially reported before there became too much coverage to keep track of it all. So it's interesting but not super surprising that there was actually very little advanced coverage of the convoy in Canadian newspapers in January before it actually set off eastward from BC. That There are a few legs, but the big one was BC. So on Thursday, the January 20th, three days before it, headed east. There were a couple paragraphs at the very end of a Vancouver Sun story that mostly concerned the potential supply chain impacts of vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. So the convoy just like an afterthought in that. And then the next day, there was a one-paragraph story, truckers depart BC Sunday headed for Ottawa protest, slotted at the top of the National Post on page A6. I guess, Rachel, if you can think back, what was the first time you recall reading or hearing anything about the convoy? And what would you recall of your impression from that? <sighs> Let's think. You know, I can't remember a precise pinpoint moment as to how I heard about it, but it was definitely before they got there. And my reaction was just uh, disgust. There are different things to potentially be disgusted by, but do you recall what prompted that? Yeah, I guess it was just this... Um, from how I understand it, in terms of the, the trucker movement, that the majority of truckers had been vaccinated, as have the mm -hmm. majority of Canadians. So again, it was the small fringe minority co-opting mm -hmm. the position of opposition and then going to our capital to 
occupy on really like false pretenses as far as I'm concerned. Also just like having been submerged in reproductive rights mobilization in history. There's obviously the abortion caravan, which did the, from the Mm, West Coast mm. to Ottawa. And again, I was like, see, they always co-opt our shit and turn it for their evil uses, (laughs) was my my personal opinion on that. And the abortion caravan took that actual route from sometime in the 1930s, a labor movement. Oh, interesting. I think it was called the On to Ottawa Trek or something like Mm. that. So in the midst of the Depression, all of these men started to go over, you know, made their way across the country. I think they only made it as far as Regina, and then the police shut them down. Oh, wow. But again, it's like, you know, a labor rights movement. And so to have this, here we are today, using this type of protest for the forces of populism just felt really... Ugh, the world. I mean, you raised a super interesting point in that they parallel, and obviously it's, you know, no comparison. I think it's perfect, but like just the idea that, yeah, I once say, like, this is also a question where society in general and the media in particular has sort of had to wrestle with the question of like, what is the proper amount of coverage and proper way to cover? Basically, a fringe group, not especially representative, at least not in like if we're talking especially not for talking about the vaccination of truckers, not especially representative, but which is absolutely loud, passionate, and once again crucially organized, or at least organized better than anyone had expected, reasonably so. Yeah, seeing how what is the correct amount of space to give to that, and so you can see on a lot of the early coverage, people trying to sort of wrap their heads around. What is this and how do we characterize it? Because the first stuff, you know, was very much about like this was the literal like just, uh, you know, anti-vaccine truckers. And then pretty quickly, you know, it became apparent that there was a lot of things going on. I mean, one of the first things I found was in the Brandon Sun in Manitoba where the editor, Matt Gerzen, like three days before it got to Ottawa, he was really trying to grapple with this and saying like, over the last number of days, I've taken several phone calls from people who are calling upon the Sun newsroom to, and I quote, report the truth about the truckers convoy that is currently winding its way to Ottawa. Um, Please do not twist the truth as we know the news media does, read one particularly insulting message to the Sun. Make sure your readers understand that this convoy is for all Canadians, that Canadians will get their freedoms back. One of them tried to tell me how Microsoft owner Bill Gates had made some kind of deal with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he went on to observe that, you know, there were more than enough signs that at least some of the groups supporting and joining the convoy have ties to white supremacist groups, but also that he wasn't convinced that the majority of people who've decided to support the truckers also support white nationalists, Western separatists, and bigots. And then he expressed sympathy for their concerns, but also added the caveat that he couldn't support an effort that, at its core, was built upon lies and misinformation. We're going to be looking at some recent pieces about the convoy. Uh, One, an investigative-y thing by Justin Ling and Vice. Uh, Another, a news report in the Thai. And the last, it's a pair of book excerpts, or, well, two excerpts from one book that ran as a two-part series in the National Post. So maybe this is a big question, but like I guess we were speaking earlier about, you know, the issues of both sides in things. I mean, this arguably isn't a human rights issue, although I imagine there are some people who, for whatever reason, see it as such. Do you think it's possible to capture ambivalence without creating a both sides situation? It's not like a really big question. My knee jerk is no, because, you know, out of these kind of these three articles that we're looking at, I think the one that most represents ambivalence is obviously the National Post one. He says there's this quote in that article where he goes, but is there a difference between Nazi sympathizers and people who are too dumb to come up with a more sophisticated argument than calling political opponents Nazis? I don't know. Is there? (laughs) Like, he presents a very ambivalent, look at the liberals, look at the lefties getting all hysterical about this. And yet... From my perspective, this is a complete propaganda piece that does not interrogate the nefarious forces, you know, currents that are running throughout it. So I don't know. Uh, I don't Mm -hmm. I think to answer your question, no, from my perspective. (laughs) Five months later, after all this initially happened and we were looking at how is it being covered now, both retrospectively and as what may be coming up? are sort of looking at how what I guess started off as people trying to wrap their heads around that have sort of formed into these fairly concrete views that are both the absolute opposites and yet not even necessarily mutually exclusive. So the National Post article you're describing is by Andrew Lawton. He's with True North 
center, which is I, – I will be generous because I don't want to go into a big digression and just call them a right-wing organization. And it was an excerpt from a book he's written about the convoy. So Lawton's book, uh, which came out, I believe, just the other week, it's a – you know, it's a 190-page soft cover called The Freedom Convoy, The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, which I don't think is supposed to be a funny title, but it, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate I, I find it funny. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's published by Sutherland House, which is this sort of boutique publishing thing run by Ken White, who was famously and controversially the editor of different times of the National Post, Saturday Night Magazine, and McLean's. And I'm also going to try to avoid a whole digression there. But it was presented as... Two parts in the post, and the the first one was that one you're describing, the headline in the paper as the lost nuances of the Freedom Convoy. And it's going through and basically talking about what he saw on the ground and what people were telling him on the ground, saying it's not what people thought it was. And, yeah, basically anything that reflected badly on it, well, that wasn't actually representative of it, which is quite an interesting rhetorical trick on the one hand. On the other hand, probably is how he and a lot of other people honestly see it. And then there's a question of, well, how many, like, Nazi flags can something have, even if these are Nazi flags that maybe are being used as some ham-fisted thing to try to protest the Canadian government, like, saying Nazis are bad and the Canadian government is Nazis. Like, even if it's just that, like, how many does a movement have to have before that doesn't become reflective of a movement? Like, it tends to take up a lot of space in a conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, he points out, yeah, misleading or initial reporting or things like, you know, he describes like the Terry Fox statue that was supposedly defaced. And he says, well, no, it wasn't defaced. It was a hat was put on it and I guess holding up a sign and like a flag draped around it. And I mean, I I agree. I mean, I think defaced technically is an accurate word, but I mean, that does suggest something semi-permanent. So that was misleading. And so he offers a bunch of examples like that. And then he sort of paints a picture of the convoy as like this very joyous encampment occupation thing, which – and the thing is for, for a lot of people, I'm sure it was. But as I said, like he glosses over all of the stuff that doesn't really fit in with that. The, the absurdity that really came across in the, the subsequent excerpt they ran – He sort of talks about how the convoy lost control of the message, not just because of the media, but because of basically dueling people laying claims to the leadership of it and holding their own press conferences. And it's really interesting how after writing an article about why aren't people reporting this as it is, he then basically goes on and on about how – they couldn't even clearly present their own message because they were basically all fighting each other. And this is one of the leaders said, inevitably, every day about 8, 8.30 a.m., we would find out, oh, there's a press conference, said Dictor. Great. We didn't authorize a press conference. Who authorized the press conference? So we spent an hour trying to figure out who authorized the press conference, where it's coming from. And it just kind of goes on and on trying to parse all of these different things. It is such a clear example of how even the organizers couldn't wrap their heads around what this is. And so had the idea that they would get angry at people for representing it as one thing or another. Um, a Vice article by Justin Ling, and the headline is, Conservative MPs met with anti-vaccine leaders inside Parliament as convoy plans to return to Ottawa. Uh, also from last week. I mean, that's interesting. What I also found really interesting is how a lot of this article really hangs on this intelligence assessment that he obtained and sort of just reports from that. I mean, there's a lot of really good and interesting stuff in this article, which serves off really good reminder of like, oh, yeah, the the, the people leading this, especially now that, you know, they're by and large aren't vaccine or mask mandates in Canada. Like, what are they organized around? (laughs) It'd be too condescending to say, like, they don't live in reality. So I'll say people whose conception of reality is distinct and resolutely counterfactual. Rachel, do you think the media has learned anything from the last time? And do you think the coverage this time seems any different or more informed? Uh, I find that to be a tricky question, personally. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there is a part of me that wants to, similar to the anti-choice stuff, be like, stop reporting on it. But at the same time, we do need to be made aware of it. And also the divides that we're seeing in society need to be discussed. So if anything, like, (laughs) I know we're talking about the Vice article, but the one that actually I felt 
you know, was something that a perspective that I hadn't seen offered yet on this, on on the convoy itself was the Thai piece, because I think it had a much more humanistic and empathetic way to frame the movement. Of course, you know, hailing from the secular tree hugging West Coast, that's like everyone calm down and remember that we're all people. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was, yeah, that's a good story that definitely takes a different sort of angle on it. And so this piece is by Christopher Gooley in the Thai. That was just this week. It's titled, The Convoys Heading Back to Ottawa, Community Solidarity is Ready. The subhead is, A National Movement Pushes Back Against the Politics of Hate and Reaches Out to Protesters. Yeah, yeah. So that one actually struck me the most. I mean, out of these three pieces that we're talking, I kind of like, you know, it's like the Thai is the good, Vice is the bad, and National Post is the ugly, you know? <laughs> like, the Vice piece is being like, here are all the bad things about this. <laughs> yeah, the Thai from the article by Christopher Gooley, looking at the national movement pushing back against radicalization, against... That's the important angle that we... Are missing, or... You know, it's, it's yeah, in, exactly. I think it's a more productive way to actually mm-hmm. engage with this. Because, you know, us being like, fuck y'all, go away. Like, that's just going to incite war. I say that like metaphorically, but you know, there is, there is a risk of violence here and it's not a productive way to engage with it. So I was, I was grateful for their take on it. And it reminds me of a (laughs) infographic that AOC recently published on her Instagram. (laughs) But she said, you know, many of our biggest problems are results of massively scaled up isolation from others. That means many of our solutions can be found in creating community. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thank you, Rachel, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I really, really appreciate this. This was fun. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email Jesse about it, Jesse being the usual host, at uh, jesse at CanadaLand.com. He reads everything you send. <laughs> People can find me on Twitter, G-O-L-D-S-B-I-E, or email as well, I guess, Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I'm not, I'm not as good at getting back to emails as I would like. But like Jesse, I promise to at least read everything. Where can people find you, Rachel? Yeah, so you can find Aborsh, uh, my current podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts, and uh, on Instagram at AborshPod. This episode is produced by Aviva Lazard. Thank you so much, Aviva, as always, with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outsorn. Theme music is by So Called, and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you would like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to candleland.com slash join. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.